Today's title is An Iron Fist in a Velvet Glove, and it's taken from Daniel 11, verses 21 through 35. Let us ask God to guide and direct us in our study this morning of another difficult passage from Daniel. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this book, how it outlines the things to come. Help us, Father, to be patient as we wait for the culmination of all things. We pray, Lord, that we might be prepared in our hearts to be your witnesses as you've commanded us to be. Now guide and direct us in our study, we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard the saying, an iron fist in a velvet glove? It's supposed to describe the man or woman who is outwardly gentle, but inwardly tough. This metaphor isn't related to or similar to other like sayings, like hand in glove or with gloves off. Those have very different meanings. An iron fist in a velvet glove speaks of the person who appears to be gentle, sweet, unassuming in appearance, but in reality is particularly severe, forceful, and uncompromising. The saying is said to originate with Charles V of Spain. Others have attributed it to the Scottish philosopher named Thomas Carlyle, who used it to describe the the French dictator Napoleon. Today, I think this would be an apt description of many political figures whom we've come to know, admire, or disdain. It has been used to describe such personages as Obama, Hillary Clinton, Trump, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and the list goes on. I'm surprised your name's not on the list. I believe if this catchphrase had been around, it would have been used of Antiochus Epiphanes. But hold that thought for just a moment. I will have more on that. But first, let me remind you of where we have been As you can see on the chart behind me, we've been looking at the lives of the kings that are spoken of in this chapter. Last week we looked at the six Syrian wars which took place between the Seleucid kingdom of Syria, kingdom of the north, and the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt, the king of the south, and the successors, uh, states of the Alexander the Great's kingdom of Egypt. Uh, That took place, these actions took place over the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C. The angel Gabriel rather simply calls or refers to them, if you will, in totality as the kings of the north and the south. After years of war, which we looked at last week, Seleucus IV came to power, but that would only be for a short time. In order to replenish the royal Treasury, and to continue on with the wars, he taxed his subjects, especially those in Judea, to a uh, very severe end. Nothing is new under the sun. So he ended up being assassinated and being succeeded, not by his rightful heir, but by a shadowy figure, and you can put up that next slide if you would, who dominates the rest of this chapter. It is his younger brother, Antiochus IV, or Epiphanes, as he liked to call himself. He is here at the end of our chart, and he lived from 170 to, or he uh, had many Syrian wars from 170 to 168 BC, which we will look at in this text. As I said, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, acquired the throne in a way that was uh, not honoring to the secession in 175 B.C. He did so by the means of two coups. He used both intrigue and deceit, as we shall see in this text, to seize power. It was Antiochus, that that will be how I refer to him from on now, uh, 
his greatest desire was to recreate the Alexandrian the Great's empire. So he demanded that all of the lands under his control be Hellenized. That is, that begin to uh, follow the Greek culture, language, and ways. Uh, Of course, this did not fit well or sit well with those Jews in Judea. This brought him into direct conflict with the more pious of the Jews in Judea. The big picture in chapter 11 is uh, of the two centuries that lead up, however, to Antiochus's reign. We traced the course last week from Daniel's writing in the 6th century B.C. as he filled in the gap from around the 3rd century to the middle of the 1st century B.C. As you can see by the timeline behind me, there were the kings Cyrus, Cambrius, uh, Smyrtus, and Darius, who reigned over the Persian Empire, and the last would be Xerxes, who was then replaced by Alexander the Great, and then on to the Seleucid and the Polytamic empires and dynasties. And these are those gentlemen down here, broken down further on the previous slide that I showed to you. So the previous 20 verses of this chapter looked at those rulers of Media Persia, that being Cambrus, Smyrtus, Darius, and Xerxes. And then it moved on to the Grecian uh, Empire of Alexander the Great, which was then divided into four, as you'll recall. Um, but that was dominated by the two main dynasties in the north, Syria, and in the south, Egypt. Well, in verses 3 and 4, we saw the preeminence or the rise of the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great until he died unexpectedly uh, from alcoholism and malaria, and his kingdom was, as I said, divided into four, amongst his four generals. And again, Seleucid uh, in the north and Ptolemy in the south, or in Syria and Egypt. This all occurred before uh, Antiochus IV's reign, and uh, he rose to power as the last of the great... Um, Seleucid dynasty kings. So we will now be concerned with him and him alone and how he relates a little bit to Ptolemy the fifth and the sixth. So with that as our introduction, kind of a different kind of introduction, would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 11? We pick up in verse 21 in the middle of this historical narrative given by the angel Gabriel to Daniel. So we are in the midst of the vision of Daniel shared with him by God's messenger Gabriel. This prophecy covers the events of over 2,500 years, as we will see next week. It goes all the way to the end of time. And uh, we pick up, though, however, with uh, the beginning of Antiochus' epiphany, or Antiochus IV reign. Uh, Now, the one that preceded him, as I spoke of already, uh, Seleucus IV, he didn't even make the list on the handout that I have given you and on the overhead, the slide, uh, because of his little importance to the, uh, to the historical reigns of the kings. So we begin here in 175 B.C. with Antiochus IV, who was to be called Epiphanes. And this is all yet future to Daniel, but to us it is ancient history. Verse 21. Gabriel says to Daniel that taking Seleucus the fourth place will be a despicable person who will arise through the honor of kingship which has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Again, the first 20 verses of this chapter were background for all of this that we are now entering into. We see that this man... Antiochus IV Epiphanes is despicable. He's an evil person. He will rule over Syria for 12 years. A relatively short period of time. But oh my, what destruction evil can rent in just two terms. We have described... 
for us, we have described for us by the angel Gabriel, his rise to power. The king, Seleucus IV, is dead, and according to protocol, his son should have taken the throne. But Antiochus IV Epiphanes has other ideas. Uh, Now, he is that despicable person spoken of in this verse. There can be no doubt about that. He fits the historical narrative that would come two, three hundred years after this is predicted. We know this, that he is the despicable person by his character and by his actions. I thought about this as I read through this text. Is it really right to call anybody despicable? You know, today that would be totally politically incorrect. Wouldn't it? But our Lord Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and hypocrites. I'm not really understanding why people get so upset when correct labels are given to people that describe their character. You know, there are people that we live with and are ruled by that are morons. Don't you agree? There are some that are really idiotic in their behavior. Here, the king is called by the angel Gabriel a despicable person. i got to believe that's correct, because God is saying it. The omniscience of God knows that this man that will take the throne in 200 plus years will be a terrible man. He will be known for his lying, his cheating, and his evil behavior. That's what Gabriel tells Daniel Like most politicians, Antiochus will achieve power through a series of lies. He will proclaim peace in our time while come waving a treaty with the enemy. This shouldn't surprise any of us since this was spoken of previously to even this text way back in Daniel chapter 8. Antiochus Epiphanes was spoken of back there. Do you remember? He was called the little horn in verse 23 of chapter 8. It says this, He will be a king who arises and is insolent, skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even, he will even, he will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. That was in Daniel's third vision. Now we're to his fourth vision where the despicable person, Antiochus, is described in his deeds and his actions. All the while, he is weaving these conspiracy theories to gain control of the throne. And this will result in the deaths of many innocent people. That's what we saw in chapter 8. He wants power at any cost. He will even oppose God himself, the prince of princes, to get it. As I mentioned previously, Antiochus was not the rightful heir to the throne. Can you get him a a cup of water? Um, You all right? Okay. Um, You sure, Dave? You okay? Okay. He was the second of Antiochus' two sons, so he's not the firstborn. When he hears of Seleucus the fourth's death, he is in Rome. He's a prisoner of Rome who has just been released. And he makes his way back as fast as he can to the capital of Syria so that he could find out the lay of the land and try to project himself into power. He then uses political intrigue, even has his nephew, assassinated in order that he can take his brother's throne. It was during this time uh, that he has determined that he will now Hellenize all of the empire under his control. It's one of his goals, as I said, to make his empire as great as that of Alexander the Great. That's why he is such a despicable person. Now, this last vision of Daniel covers three chapters. It covers 11 and 10, 11, and 12. We are in chapter 11, 
Uh, we saw the background and the preparation in chapter 10. Now we've seen the lay of the land historically, and now we're getting into the meat of the vision. And we shall see that this carries on all the way into the end times. By including this in the book of Daniel, the Lord wanted to prepare his people in the immediate and in the future for these despicable people that will rule the world and cause them so many problems. So this, so this um, vision covers not only the next 200 years, 300 years, but it will cover the very end times as we shall see in the tribulation. But the, this chapter covers the last Grecian uh, king of the empire of Syria. So, why spend so much time on a man that seems insignificant to world history? Because as we study this chapter, we will see that this evil man, Antiochus Epiphanes, is a type of Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes will destroy the temple of God. He will kill thousands of God's people. He is the personification of evil. He is a type or a figure of the man of sin. A figure of the man of sin who is yet to come. Antiochus and the Antichrist are strikingly similar in character and actions. Look now with me at verse 22 where we see he begins his reign of evil. He has his armies looking towards Egypt in verse 22. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. Now this covers a whole battle and uh, the results of it uh, to, for, the, for the nation of Judea. It seems that he sent in many troops, overflowing forces, that flooded his enemies in the south, in, in Egypt, and shattered them. And then he returned to the nation of Judea where we find that he exercises his power in trying to Hellenize Judea by having the high priest killed. But first, he defeats the armies of Ptolemy. Now, they've been going back and forth. There's been war after war after war between the two former generals of Alexander the Great, the one is in Syria and the one in, in um, Egypt. And here we see these words, the overflowing forces, is a figure of his armies, not of an actual flood of water, going into Egypt and wiping out the opposition. Then they return north, going through Judea, and his attention turns towards the city of Jerusalem and the prince of the covenant. That is a, another name for the high priest in Jerusalem. The high priest was the one who was to defend the Mosaic Law, defend the Jewish people, and keep it from turning secular. Well, Antiochus IV wanted Judea to be like Greece. He wanted to secularize it. So the first step in accomplishing that was having Ananias, the high priest, murdered. He was the chief opponent to Antiochus's wishes to Hellenize Israel. So he has him killed. But there is a, a pro-Antiochus element amongst the Jews, and he enlists their help. Now the backstory to all of this is that uh, Ananias, Onias, I should say, uh, was to be succeeded by Jason, his son, but taking things in baby steps, Antiochus has... Onias replaced, not by his son Jason, who was of uh, the persuasion that Judaism should continue on. He had him replaced by the highest bidder. And so he had a man placed into the office that should have belonged to Jason. Jason is not killed, but he is now in the background. And um, we see in verse 23, after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. Apparently, Antiochus goes back up to Syria and he decides that he's had enough war for the time being and he has an alliance or makes a treaty with the king of the south, the Ptolemaic 
um, regime, dynasty. In particular, um, the fifth king of the Ptolemaic regime. And they both come to the table and they agree to this deal. Antiochus promises to send $170 billion by airplane to the city of Egypt and then everything will be right and the Egyptians can go on with making their ballistic missiles. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm mixing up my time, my dates here. Forgive me. Antiochus signs this deceptive treaty that both men sit down at the table and lie to one another in order for both to achieve their evil goals. He wants the king of the south to be lulled by this treaty into a false sense of security. And then he goes home and he begins to put his army back together once again to invade Egypt as we read in verse 24 of the expansion of his powers. In a time of tranquility, that's the peace treaty, he will enter into the richest parts of the realm, that's Egypt, and he will accomplish what his fathers never could, nor his ancestors, and he will distribute plunder, booty, possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but for a time. Antiochus invades, and he does something that his dads and granddads and all the other Seleucids could never do. He defeats Egypt, drives them back towards Egypt, and they again sign a peace treaty, but both, uh, but Antiochus and his forces then rape and loot the land of all their wealth. And on their way back, he does what was really smart. He begins to distribute the wealth. He believes in the distribution of wealth. He starts to pay off people. He distributes plunder, booty, and possessions amongst them to make friends so that he can rule over the Egyptian lands. He creates supporters with goodwill by paying them off, if you, if you will. Uh, so once he has gained their support, he goes home to devise another plan to complete the conquest of Egypt, which has now pushed the Ptolemaic king back further south, and... He's wait, plays the waiting game. Why is this important to us? Well, as I said last week, the Lord was allowing all of these wars between the king of the north, Syria, and the king of the south, Egypt, the Seleucid regime, and the Ptolemaic regime for one point, for one reason. Israel, Judea, was stuck in the middle between of them. It's the land between. And they were the ones who suffered as one army or another came through their lands took all of their precious items, gold, silver, food, animals, and the Judeans suffered mightily. This was because of their lack of obedience to God and their rejection of the agreement that they made with God to obey. So the Jews were caught in the middle of this vice, if you will. Now verse 25 We read of Antiochus' invasion of Egypt once more. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an even larger army, extremely large, and a mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Antiochus just can't get over this dream. He wants to have an empire the size of Alexander. So he goes home and he raises up an even bigger army. Antiochus attacks Egypt once more. For his spies have told him that Egypt, even though that they are arming themselves and making their own armies, they are not well prepared. And they meet on a great battlefield somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula. This great battle takes place, and Ptolemy and his forces are once again defeated. It goes so bad that the, ga- that the angel Gabriel says he shall not stand. And in verse 26, we learn why. Those who eat at the table of Ptolemy, the king of the south, those who eat the choice food at his table with, will destroy him and his army will overflow and many will fall down and be slain. Apparently the king of the south, Ptolemy, who is just a young boy at this time, 
is relying on the advice of two of his advisors or regents, if you will. And they, the two regents, were in cahoots with Antiochus. And so his army is defeated, and they are looking forward to the payoff, maybe being installed by by Antiochus as the kings themselves of Egypt. Verse 26 tells us, through an editorial comment, this. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to one another at the table, same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Notice, everybody involved in all of this is said to be evil, even a young child who is king of the south. Both the king of the south and the north want their ways. They don't care about the cost. There's an old saying that says, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But according to the Bible, this is not the end. This is just a picture of what is to come at the appointed times or the end times. Apocalyptic events like this always have a predetermined course by God Almighty. The Lord is sovereign, as Bud prayed this morning, and his will will be done no matter what historic events intervene. The Lord will accomplish his plans and purposes. Even if there are monstrous evil men involved in it, You see, they are simply tools in the hands of the Creator to accomplish His will. For example, who can ever forget the great white chief in Washington making how many numberless promises to the poor American Indians? But we know that peace treaties are meaningless amongst evil men. Powerful men who just want what they want. It doesn't matter the cost to those involved in those wars, does it? Thousands of Egyptian troops died according to this verse. Thousands of Indians died in the American West. I'm reminded of what the greatest American president of the 20th century said. The Gipper once said this about unconstrained government. The most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. You know, one of my core principles is never trust the government. Antiochus couldn't be trusted Ptolemy couldn't be trusted. They both lied to one another at the peace table. Some of us, like Bud, can remember the Prime Minister of England coming out and waving the peace treaty with Hitler. You remember that? Chamberlain? You remember that, Bud? Antiochus couldn't sustain his victory in Egypt, and he moved back, according to verse 28, to the land of Syria. Look with me there. He returned to the land, and he did so with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. What in the world does this mean? The Holy Covenant, again, is figurative, speaking of the land of Judea. So as his, army, as his armies have defeated the southern king of Ptolemy in Egypt, but not totally. They go back to Syria to regroup once again. They need a rest, but hey, as long as we're stopping here in Judea, let's make the best of it. Let's steal, plunder, and loot everything that's in Jerusalem. And that's what he does, because you see Antiochus, a secularist, one who wants to turn Israel into a mini-Egypt, hates the Jews. Just like the Antichrist will hate the Jews. They take all the gold and the silver from the temples. They kill thousands of Jewish people. Hold on, just one cotton pick a minute there, Pastor. I've been hearing in the mainstream media that Jews were never in Israel before Muslims. That the holy mount there in Jerusalem really is nothing more than a Muslim holy site forever. Well, this says different, doesn't it? It tells us that 
way back in the 6th century, 600 years before Christ was born, at least in this text, the Jews were in Jerusalem. And they had a temple there. It's plundered. It's taken like happens over and over again to them. Their silver and gold and all their precious items are stolen. You know, since the beginning of time, they've been trying to get rid of the Jews, haven't they? Anti-Semitism goes all the way back to the very beginning. The armies of Antiochus raided the temple, took its treasure. They murdered thousands of people. The hatred of of Antiochus pictures the coming Antichrist who will love to kill Jews as well. I'm surprised that Antiochus didn't stop and have all of the gold teeth ripped out of the Jews that he murdered and maybe cut off their hair and they could make something profitable out of it. Oh, but that'll have to wait a couple, 20 centuries to Hitler. Now, verse 29. Here we see a challenge to Antiochus' power. At the appointed time, he will return. Again, this is all underneath the sovereignty of God. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. That's Egypt. But this will be the last time it will not turn out the way it did before. God has an appointed time for kings. He raises up and takes them down for his purposes. He... That is, Antiochus has gone home to Syria to regroup, and now he's coming back to return to Egypt to once again destroy and conquer. But this will be the last time he does so. He invades Egypt once again for the last time. He will be defeated by a new enemy. History tells us that in the spring of 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes could no longer control his passions while he's in Syria. He had to have Egypt. He had to build this monstrous empire to compete with that of Alexander. And he marched his army into the land of Pharaoh. And he pushed beyond those borders that he had already conquered. And he laid siege to the city of Memphis. He quickly overwhelmed the city and the rest of lower Egypt. But that wasn't enough. He marched on to the coastal city of Alexandria. And he had every notion to lay siege to it. In fact, he had already had himself crowned as king of Egypt. But there was a big problem. There was a big problem as he approached Alexander. He found out that Ptolemy had appealed to Rome for help. So as he's approaching the city, he sees out in the bay Roman galleys all along the shoreline. In verse 30, it tells us they were the ships of Kedem. They came against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return, becoming enraged at the Holy Covenant, Judea, Israel, and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. The name Kittim is an ancient name or title used for the island of Cyprus. It was the place where the Roman fleet would harbor for the winter. Antiochus finds out that the Romans are there. And their leader, Gaius Papalius Linnaeus, calls him to a meeting just outside the city walls of Alexandria. Once there, the Roman general, Linnaeus, commands Antiochus to get out of Egypt. Well, reports tell us that Antiochus thought about that for a minute. He thought about his dream to rule over all of Egypt, to be a a great empire maker. And so then he told the Roman council that he would withdraw and think about it. But the Roman council said, just a moment, Antiochus. And he took a stick and he drew it around Antiochus. And he said to him, to the despicable man, give me your answer before stepping out of the circle. Antiochus thought to himself, he recalled the terrible defeat that his father had suffered at the hands of the Romans. And being no fool, he realized it would not be wise to go against the power of Rome. So he was humiliated 
And angrily he withdrew from Egypt and made his way home. And guess where he had to pass through once again? Judea, Israel. And he took out his anger and wrath on the Jewish people once more. While he was in Egypt, unbeknownst to him, the rumors spread around, spread around that Antiochus had been killed by the Romans. And so Jason, remember the son of the former high priest who Alexander, uh, Antiochus had murdered? He said, well, this would be a good time to take back the high priesthood and free our people from the Syrian domination. He rose up and he killed the puppet that Antiochus had impaneled and took back the city, only to have Antiochus show up on their doorstep. Not long later. So Antiochus arrived in Jerusalem, incensed, and ordered the rebellion put down and all the Jews killed. 100,000 Jews died in the city, it is said. All of the stuff that they had regathered in the temple was stolen. He put forth the Hellenization of, of Judea once again. How did he do it this time? He stopped the worship at the temple by the Jews, obviously, and he had the Greek god Zeus impaneled above the altar that was once the place of the worship of God. He had naked Greek games played in the temple site. He had the furniture of the temple taken and removed and up to Syria. He stripped the gold plating off the doors and the lintels of the temple. He stole all of their gold, silver, and precious vessels. Everything of value was taken from Jerusalem. His goal was to trash the Holy Covenant and all that it represented of Judaism. Now, some of the secular Jews, however, were willing to follow him. The pious Jews remained faithful to God and they were murdered. A new high priest was appointed, but this time the high priest was in charge of worshiping Zeus rather than Yahweh. And on December 14th, so tradition tells us, 168 B.C., a pig was sacrificed on the altar of God in the temple. Its blood was sprinkled throughout the holies of holies. And above the altar, as I said, Zeus was erected. The Jewish people were forced to come and bow to Zeus, drink the blood of the pigs or pig or die. This was a despicable man who was a type of Antichrist who is yet to come. With a smooth tongue, flattering speech, conspiracies, he curries the favor of the masses to follow him. And when they do, he finally causes all others either to bow the knee or to die. I would imagine that uh, as he was getting all of this money from looting and stuff, he started his own global initiative the Antichrist Global Initiative, to spread around his influence and try to get people to support him. And many Jews did. They bought into his gifts and bribes and became his friends, if you will, because they agreed with the secularization of Judea. With unabashed confidence in his own abilities, he killed his enemies and exalted himself as God. Do you know what epiphanies means? God made manifest on earth. Antichus thought of himself as an empire building, as God come down to rule over the world. So Antichus now setting his mind on wiping off the Jewish people, verse 31, tells us of this abuse of power that I have described for you. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. He puts forth a systematic program of the punishment and wiping out of the Jewish worship system. He uses a police state to end Judaism. He makes all things Jewish illegal. 
Circumcision was declared illegal. Reading the Torah was declared illegal. Worshiping Yahweh was declared illegal with a death penalty for doing so. The temple was converted, as I said, to a pagan temple where a system of prostitution was put into place to worship God. Worst of all, Antiochus had the Holy of Holies desecrated. But this is not the abomination that is talked about by our Lord Jesus in Matthew 24. This is the abomination that makes desolate. It is a figure, a picture of what is yet to come in the tribulation. In verse 32 we read, By smooth words he will turn the godlessness, those are the secular Jews, those who are the ones that are agreeing with Hellenization, They will act wickedly towards the covenant. That's the Mosaic law, the temple, and the Jewish uh, priests. But the people who know their God will display great strength and take action. As I said, many turn to the dark side. They align themselves with Antichus, but there are those, that small remnant, that will remain faithful to God. They took courage and great strength, and they opposed the Syrian pogrom in their nation. God raises up a godly man and a godly family to confront this tyrant. You might know them as the Maccabees, led by Matthias, a priest, who when told by Antiochus' representative to stop worshiping God, killed him, and then they hid out in the, in the hills and drew an army amongst to themselves. Now, the term Maccabees in Hebrews means the hammer. The Maccabees did their best to hammer Antiochus wherever they could. They tried to block off the roads to Jerusalem and capture all the small towns around Jerusalem. And they did so with great effectiveness. They rebelled. And in verse 33 we read, Those who had insight amongst God's people will give understanding to the many, and yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. The remnant of God's people are abused by Antiochus and his armies. The Maccabees, the more they rebel against him, the more consequences there are for the Regular people. Here we see that amongst the Jewish people is a remnant who faithfully live for the Lord despite the cost. You know, there will always be a faithful remnant of God's people who are able to understand the times. The deep thinkers who have great insight into Scripture and what lies behind the curtain if you will. These can see that this war between God's people and the secularists who are trying to change them is really a war in the heavenlies, in the cosmos, between the evil and despicable angels, the fallen angels, and the host of God's army. Today, we're being asked to bow our knees to the same secularism secularism in our nation. It's just another way to say Hellenization. We're told to get with the program or suffer the consequences. Hasn't come to a war yet. But it's looking more and more every day like it might. The leftists, leftists are... Marching in the, in the street, destroying the peace of our country. If they continue, bad things, really bad things, might happen. Verse 34 tells us, When they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join them in their hypocrisy. Even though all of the secularists, the Jews that have joined with Antiochus, are a great and mighty band of themselves, they're still the Maccabees. And some people join with them. So the faithful Jews have gotten a little help in this. Matthias, his sons John, Simon, Judas, Elijah, and Jonathan fight against Antiochus and all seems lost. How can a little band of Jews defeat the great armies of the king of the north, of Syria? Well, guess what? Judas was a brilliant military commander. 
And they seized the control, as I said, of all the entrances to Jerusalem and the small towns. And by guerrilla warfare, they are able to defeat Antiochus Epiphanes and drive him back to Syria. So on December 25th, 165 B.C., three years after the temple had been desecrated, it is rededicated. It's cleansed and rededicated. That event is now memorialized. It's called Hanukkah. You might know it as the Feast of Dedication or Feast of Lights, as it's called in the book of John. Antiochus Epiphanes went home and died just two years later in 163. And it's interesting that Daniel 11 doesn't give any of the details of those closing events. But it does say this in verse 35, and I commend you to it. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to be refined, purged, and make them pure until the end time. Because it is still to come at the appointed time. These who fell in the service of God were being refined for a time yet to come. I believe that time is when Jesus Christ rules and reigns over the new heaven and earth. New earth. Persecution, however, is not limited to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. We suffer persecution today. Persecution is always for the purpose of refining the individual, making him what God would have him to be. So Daniel takes a great leap forward here. Chapter 11. Verse 35 is a leap forward in time. Gabriel tells Daniel, who pens it, puts it on paper, that there is a time yet to come where the Lord will do great things for the Jewish people. This next section of prophecy that we looked at, look at next week, next Sunday, will switch from Antiochus Epiphanes and it will move forward 2,000 years to the future anti, or whatever it turns out to be, to the future Antichrist. That appointed time, as it's called here. So the focus switches from the 2nd, 1st century B.C. to the time of tribulation. Then an evil one, much like Antiochus, except more despicable and more evil, will arise. And he will call himself God, and he will have his image put into the third temple that rises on Mount Zion, and he will declare himself to be God. All of this foreshadows and tells us as types of what will take place in the future for Israel. So as we look at verse 36 and beyond next week, this prophecy jumps to the last generation of Jews on earth who will follow Jesus Christ in the end time and defeat the evil one. The Antichrist will reign during the end of time only to be defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now looking back at this section of verses, we might ask, how is the church to respond to this? How is, how is this related to our lives today? Well, the evil that was in that culture is the same evil that is present in ours today. How are we to respond to such evil? Are we to raise arms like the Maccabees did and defeat them, fighting them on the streets? I would say absolutely not. That's not our task. That's not our call. But we should be prepared like the faithful Jews who died and were martyred at that time, the pious ones who stood for truth, we should be, be ready to pay a price that might fall to us. We must be ready to stand for truth and to die for the Lord, if that be his will. It's interesting to me that ancient days are so similar to our days today. Many want to make peace with the culture, many pray for world peace. What a silly notion. All the while they ignore. All the while that they say these things, they ignore. The killing of millions of innocent babies. The forcing of, of godly people to violate their consciences and do things that they never wanted to do. The hijacking of our worship by secularists in our society today. So should we resort to violence? The answer to that, as I said, is no. We should not take up guns to kill the enemy. 
We should spread the gospel. We should share the good news. We should preach the truth and let, let the chips fall where they may. Christians should never become militaristic, but pacifists. I find it noteworthy, however, that Daniel never condemns, the angel speaking through Daniel never condemns the goal and the achievements of the Maccabees. I guess that's food for thought. So how do we apply this text to our lives? I think we should not be surprised when we are persecuted by our culture. It's going to be much more than you can't make that, you have to make that cake for, for a homosexual couple. Great persecution is coming if the tide is not stemmed. We must, however, stand on godly principles. When we are attacked, we will suffer. Paul said so, telling Timothy, his protege, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Are you willing? That's the question. Will you be amongst the faithful remnant, or will you join with the secularists? It's politically correct today to stand with the world, to bend the knee. It even sounds reasonable at times. They're just a loving couple that want to have a family and love each other. That sounds so good, doesn't it? But it's obnoxious in God's sight. In the tribulation, there will one rise who will lie, cheat, steal, deceive, and make war on the godly. He will begin by waiving a peace treaty, supposedly granting Israel all of its rights and finally having peace in their lifetime, but it will be a lie, and he will attack them with vengeance, and three and a half years of great tribulation will follow. The people of the world who thought they were entering into a time of world peace will have that shattered by the wrath of the evil one. Just as Antiochus was a great deceiver and a man of bloodshed, so will the coming Antichrist. By the way, the world is filled with little Antichrist today. Much like Antiochus and the Antichrist, we are surrounded by them. Some even fill pulpits today. We should beware of these who lie, cheat, and deceive To get ahead, we find them all over the place, causing great harm to the cause of Christ. You can identify them by their desire for power, by their desire for money and control, and their their tools of deception, lies, and flattery. Good men are becoming fewer and fewer in our day. Let us pray that the remnant of God can stand and serve him in these difficult days in which we live. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for the message of Gabriel to Daniel. Help us, Lord, to heed its warning Help us to remember that there is a time coming when hell will break loose on the face of the earth. Thank God the church will not be part of it. But Lord, help us to win as many as we can to Christ before that time. Help us to stand against the inroads of the culture into our church and into our nation. Help us, Father, to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. We do say we can do so with the encouragement of the word of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's name that we ask this. Amen.